Several years ago, I had the opportunity to take a trip to Ireland. Uh, and I had some friends who were living there at the time, and they invited me to come visit and offered uh, me to, to, to let me stay with them. And so I flew into Dublin, where they drove to pick me up. And because they were living in a town kind of to the south of that city there, before heading down to their place, we decided to, to spend the day in Dublin to, to really explore and, and have a good time there. And now there's a lot to see in Dublin. There's a lot there. There are castles, uh, multiple castles in Dublin. I mean, most towns in Ireland have some kind of castle just casually placed in it. Uh, Dublin has multiple castles. There's a couple of of thousand-year-old cathedrals in Dublin, lots of cobblestone roads lined with shops and all kinds of things to explore. And of course, plenty of great Irish pubs to go sit in and, and enjoy. But of all these things, the very first thing that I did when I landed in Ireland was head straight to Trinity College to see the Book of Kells. Have you ever heard of the Book of Kells? Right? It is this handwritten manuscript of the four Gospels. It was made in an Irish monastery somewhere around 800 A.D., Uh, But it's not just a handwritten copy. It is absolutely beautiful with these intricate illuminations and, and illustrations throughout it. The whole thing was handwritten and drawn by at least four different scribes and, and at least three contributing artists. And I think I've got some photos up here to look at. This is one of the pages from it, uh, one of the opening pages with words on it. But you can see the, these are not just words, right? They have been drawn more than they've been written with these intricate Celtic designs winding all around and beautiful colors. Um, I've got another one here. This is one of the more normal pages, so to speak. But even this, you can see there are these incredible little accents all throughout it of colors and, and designs. Um, and, then, and then another one I've got. This is a, a full-page drawing representative of Matthew. Uh, it's found at the beginning of the Gospel of Matthew, and, and you can see that even this is far more than just a drawing. I, it's, you know, there are these intricate Celtic knots surrounding the border, weaving their way all around, and meanwhile, Matthew is there staring straight ahead while he's holding out this book in one of his hands, almost inviting you to enter the story of Jesus that he's about to share. All right, the book of Kells is beautiful. It's this incredible thing. And I am the kind of nerd who raced off to go see it when first setting foot in Ireland. All right, I just love this stuff. Um, and this treasure is all thanks to a few artists and some incredibly devoted scribes who spent their time copying down the words of scripture and doing so in a really beautiful and unique way. And so so with that image in mind, and, and of course Matthew there beckoning us, I want to invite you to open your Bible up to Matthew chapter 13. And if you look um, on there, this is actually our text today in the book of Kells. Um, you probably can't read it. It's in Latin, but there it is um, just to see. But Matthew 13, we're going to begin in verse 51 this morning. As you're turning there, I'll just remind you for several weeks, 
we have been looking through this sermon that Jesus preaches throughout this chapter, Matthew 13, in which he describes the kingdom of heaven with parables. Right? He uses one image after another, after another, after another. And he has told the story of a farmer who sows seed in all different kinds of soil. He has told the story of a field of, of wheat and weeds that grew up together. He has said that the kingdom is like a tiny mustard seed that grows up into a large tree where birds can live. He said that it's like a little bit of yeast that, that got in and leavened a whole lump of flour enough for almost a small village to eat. Right? He says that the kingdom is it's like a, a hidden treasure or a great pearl, both worth selling everything in order to obtain. And last week we saw that the kingdom is like this great net that finally sorts out everything that is evil and restores all that is good bringing about this new heavens and new earth, God's restoration. And after describing all of these things, the kingdom with all of these images, Jesus has one more thing to say to his disciples. And he's going to make mention of a scribe, you know, like our book of Kel friends, who is trained for the kingdom. And so Matthew 13, beginning in verse 51, Hear the word of the Lord. Jesus asks, have you understood all of this? And they answered, yes. And he said to them, therefore, every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like the master of a household who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. And when Jesus had finished these parables, he left that place. This is the word of God for the people of God. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for these stories that you have given us of your kingdom to fill our imagination and draw us in. God, I pray that as we consider the words of your scripture, that you would sharpen our minds and soften our hearts, that we might know you and love you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a household who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. I'd say if any of Jesus' sayings were cryptic, this is probably one of them. What in the world is he saying, right? In, in men's group this past Thursday evening, someone was asking, you know, hey, what, what are we looking at this next Sunday? And so I, I quoted this passage, and afterwards we just sort of all stared at each other and wondered, what in the world does this mean? And, and at the time, I was kind of like, yeah, i really not quite sure where I'm going. Um, you know, I got a few days to figure this out. These are some of those verses that when you're reading scripture, you probably just sort of read on past because you're not sure what to make of it. You know, the metaphor is clear enough. We can all understand going into our house and bringing out something new and something old. You know, go grab some nice shiny thing that you got this past Christmas, bring that on out, and then go dig somewhere in a closet and find something with a good thick layer of dust on it and bring that out. 
All right, that's the image we're working with. We understand that, but what does it mean, right? What does this mean? Well, I think we can begin to get a little bit of a better picture of this as we consider the role of scribes in the ancient world. Because he says, the scribe trained for the kingdom is like the householder who brings out what is new and what is old. So let's think about scribes a little bit together. Right? We first see scribes functioning in the kingdom of Israel. And the word scribe is similar to our modern word secretary. All right, in First and Second Kings, as well as First and Second Chronicles, we see secretaries who worked for the kings of Israel. All right, and these were not just typists or office assistants or something like that, but very similar to our own government uh, that has a secretary of state, a secretary of the treasury, a secretary of defense, so on and so forth. The ancient Scribes were these kinds of secretaries. They had certain measures of administrative authority as they aided the king in governing the affairs of Israel. And so they were educated people. They had administrative skill. And they wielded some measure of authority and influence as they lived and worked. And this is seen throughout the story of of Israel. But then at the end of 2 Kings and in the end of 2 Chronicles, All of this comes to a screeching halt when Israel is invaded and overthrown and the people are sent off into exile, right? This is our our dwelling passage. In fact, Jeremiah 29, where our dwelling passage comes from, describes the court officials among those who were sent off into exile. And this would have included the royal scribes. All right, so, so they're off into exile, and, and this is what's going on. And the age of exile is mostly dominated by these prophet figures who rise up. And they speak and, and remind the people of God's promise and call them to repentance and so on and so forth. But then eventually, the people are able to return to Jerusalem to, to rebuild the temple and to try to restore their way of life. And this story of return is told in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. Nehemiah was a governor who oversaw the rebuilding of Jerusalem. And Ezra was a scribe. He was a scribe. And Ezra chapter 7, he is described as a scribe skilled in the law of Moses that the Lord, the God of Israel, had given And it says that he had the hand of the Lord upon him. And then it goes on to say that that Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach the statutes and ordinances in Israel. And I love that it says that he had his heart set not only to study, but also to do it, right? And to teach it. And so after the exile, the people had been a long time without instruction in the word of God. So Ezra, as they come back together, is set on teaching this to the people. He is set on sharing this with the people. He is committed to restoring the people's knowledge of and worship of God. And this is what Ezra does. 
One of my favorite scenes in the Old Testament is Nehemiah chapter 8. All of the people of Israel who have come back gather together in the main square, and Ezra stands before them all to read the words of Scripture to them. Many of them had grown up, as, as we mentioned, their whole lives in exile, right? They had heard some of the stories, I'm sure, but, but never before had they heard these pure words of Scripture read aloud to them. It's this sweet and, and really thrilling moment to finally hear the words of God after years of silence and exile. And so this is the description in Nehemiah 8. It says, Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was standing above all the people. And when he opened it, all the people stood up. And then Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands. And then they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. And as he read, many from among the Levites helped the people to understand the law. And while the people remained in their places, so they read from the book, from the law of God, with interpretation. They gave the sense so that the people understood the reading, right? And so this is the scene. It's, it's Ezra standing before the people. He proclaims the word of the Lord. They say, amen, amen. They bow down and worship. And then others go throughout and, and teach and provide interpretation and understanding, right? I love this. The people gather and worship. The word of God is proclaimed and taught. I hope that our gatherings can look even a little bit like this, and that perhaps we can thrill at the sweet hearing of God's word just as they did. So Ezra, Ezra is this model scribe. He recovers the word of God, and he shares it with the people of God. And this is what scribes are supposed to do. This is what scribes are meant to do, and this is what they're intended to do on into Jesus' day, to be a people who preserve the word of God and share it with the people. And like Ezra, they're not only to study the law and not even only teach the law, but also do the law, practice this word of God. But that is what becomes the problem. Because by Jesus' day, the scribes have become experts in the law and experts at telling people what to do. But they have all lost Ezra's heart. They've lost this heart. And in Matthew 23, Jesus confronts the scribes of his day. He says, the scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. Therefore, do whatever they teach you. Follow it. But do not do as they do. For they do not practice what they teach. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on the shoulders of others. But they themselves are unwilling to lift a finger to move them. 
And then a little bit later in the chapter, he really starts railing into them. He says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you lock people out of the kingdom of heaven. Woe to you, you are blind guides. He says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, you tithe, mint, dill, and cumin, and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice, mercy, faith. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they're full of greed and self-indulgence. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you were like whitewashed tombs. So on the outside, look, beautiful, but inside they're full of the bones of the dead and all kinds of filth. Jesus does not mince words with the scribes. Because of all people, they know better, right? You see, the scribes of Jesus' day taught the people of God, but they failed to follow the word of God. They may have kept the law, but they lost justice and mercy and faith, the weightier things of the law. They passed on their traditions, but, but they had forgotten the tradition, the very truth of God. You see, there, there was a scholar from the, the early 20th century who once said it this way. He says, tradition is the living faith of the dead, but traditionalism is the dead faith of the living. Let's say that again. Tradition is the living faith of the dead, but traditionalism is the dead faith of the living. You see, the scribes had passed on their own dead faith, but they had failed to pass on the living faith of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, David, Nehemiah, Ezra. And this is where Jesus' parable comes in. Because the scribes of the day had faithfully recounted things of old, but they were also dead and failed to give life. And so Jesus says, every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a household who brings out of his treasure what is new, and what is old. You see, a scribe trained for the kingdom is faithfully committed to what is old, faithfully committed to the word of God, but is able to bring it out in a way that is new and fresh, a way that leads to life. It's very much like our old Irish monk friends, right? Who painstakingly wrote out the words of the gospel, passing on the story of Jesus, but did so in a way that is beautiful, intricate, colorful, fresh, new, right? 
See, in many ways, I think a scribe trained for the kingdom of heaven will not only be a scribe, but will be an artist. A scribe trained for the kingdom of heaven is like an artist bringing out what is old, but always doing it in new and fresh, beautiful ways. And as the church, I think we, we long to be like Ezra. Right? We want to be a people powerfully calling people back to the word of God. But I wonder if sometimes we've become a little bit more like the scribes of Jesus' day, who point to the word, but fail to show people the life that it brings. That this word, this gospel, this kingdom has some real life to it. And so Jesus has been painting the kingdom of God with all of these parables, right? And here's the question that that I want to mull on a little bit together this morning. How can we become artists trained for the kingdom of God? How can we be scribes, artists trained for the kingdom of God? Well, in order to do that, I just want to take a little bit to to reflect on a few questions together from a guy named Thomas Hoving. All right, Thomas Hoving was a former director of the New York Metropolitan Museum of Art. And he put together a handful of questions to help determine whether a work of art was any good, whether, whether it was worth anything, right? And these questions that he put together for art as a museum curator and director are strangely applicable to us as we consider how to be artists trained for the kingdom of God. And so there's six questions that he gives. I'll, I'll read them off to you and, and share a little bit with each one. So the first question that he asks about, well, is art any good? The first one is, well, does it express successfully what it's intending to express? Does it express successfully what it's intending to express? And, and I think this is crucial for us because the moment we start talking about being creative, being artistic, you know, bringing out the kingdom of God in new and fresh ways, we can often get distracted by the new and the fresh and forget the old, right? But the, the one trained in the kingdom brings out not only what is new, but also what is old. And so the question is, as we are people living the kingdom of God together, are we successfully expressing what we intend to express? Is our life together and our life every day expressing the truth of Jesus, who is God in the flesh, who came to earth to live a perfect life, who suffered and died and was buried and rose again, and is coming again to make all things new. Does our life express that? We want to be fresh, and we want to bring new ways to this, but we've got to come back to the gospel again and again. Is a piece of art any good? Does it express successfully 
what it's intending to express? That's the first question that he asks. The second one that he asks is, does it amaze you in a different way each time you look at it? Does it amaze you in a different way each time you look at it? Oh man, this is what our faith should be like, right? It should be this place of awe and wonder. That every time we come to worship, every time we come to consider God, we're amazed in a different way. We're amazed at this kingdom in this different way. Every time we glimpse one of these different pictures that Jesus has shared, right? And there are so many more pictures to be glimpsed of the kingdom. This whole kaleidoscope of what it is. Does it amaze you in a different way each time you look at it? To come to the word of God with fresh eyes. To come to the person of God with fresh devotion. Right? Here's another question that he asks about art. He says, does it grow in stature? Now I've got to admit, I have no idea what this means in terms of art. Um, I don't know what a piece of art looks like to grow in stature, but that's strangely applicable to us. Are we growing? Are we going somewhere, right? Are, are we growing up into Jesus Christ who is the head? Are we becoming like this little mustard seed that grows up into a tree? Or like this little bit of yeast that grows up into a fully leavened loaf? Are we growing, living, moving? And, and that doesn't just mean numerically. Are we bringing in new people or that sort of thing? Are we growing in God? Are we growing in the kingdom, right? Kind of related to that, the fourth question that he asks is, does it continually mature? Does this piece of art continually mature? You know, this is the kind of thing where there are some pieces of art that you look at, and you look at it again about 10 years later, and it is a disaster, right? I mean, I, I recently was in a, a value village and found an old uh, DVD of a, of a show called 24, which is a great action show. I, I love that show. I don't know if any, any other fans here. It was season one. I pulled it off, and I was shocked. It looked like it was like clip art pasted onto something with like a little clock and stuff. And I was like, this show was cool when it came out. And this looks dorky. I got to be honest, right? Good art stays good, right? Good art is something that you go back to a museum 10, 20, 30, 100, 1,000 years later to see, right? The book of Kells is well over 1,000 years old. And I ran to it. Good art stays good. Good art matures, right? And so as we live in the kingdom of God, is our life just kind of tacky and out of date? Or are we maturing? Are we growing, right? Are we really living and breathing, The next question he asks, I love this. He says, does its visual impact of mysterious, pure power increase 
every day. Man, if it's doing that to you, it's art, right? I mean, have you ever seen a piece of art or a movie or a piece of music that just powerfully moved you? This is what the kingdom of God should be like, right? Paul warns of people who who live in outward forms of godliness but deny its power, and he says, avoid them, right? We don't just want to look godly. We want to be people who walk in power with this awe and wonder upon us. Paul says elsewhere, the kingdom of God depends not on talk, but of power. Our life together should be a force in the world that transforms, that renews, a powerful, mysterious work of art that draws people into it. The sixth and and last question that, that he asks about art is this. Is it unforgettable? Is it unforgettable? Is it something that once you've seen it, you can't get it out of your mind? You know, maybe it's these songs that keep coming back to you in random moments. Maybe it's this image you just keep coming back to. Right? Is the kingdom of God something that we talk about on Sunday and then by Monday afternoon we've forgotten? Or is it really something that fills our hearts and our lives every moment? This is what it is to be a scribe trained for the kingdom of heaven, to be an artist for the kingdom. And so what does all of this look like practically, right? How can we actually practice this? How can we actually live this together? Well, there's a lot of ways, I'm sure, but I think, very simply, it means going into the storehouse of your faith and finding things there that are old and also finding things that are new. And here's the best way to do that or at least a way to do that. First, you bring out something that's old. Find some old piece of your faith. Maybe it's a story from earlier in your life, some moment that you had with God or with the people of God. Or maybe it's something that you've learned about God along the way, about his character, about scripture. You know, or maybe it's a spiritual practice that you've picked up along the way that that fills you and fuels you. Find some old piece of your faith and share it with someone. Find that and share it with someone. Teach them something that you've learned. Show them in the Bible. Show them from your life. Bring out something that's old and share it. Show it. Teach, right? So that's, that's one piece. Another is, is finding something that's new. And maybe that looks like asking someone else to share something from their spiritual life and bringing that into your own. Ask someone what they've learned about God. Ask someone about some spiritual discipline that they have. 
Ask them about how they came to know and, and follow Jesus. And ask them to teach you. And then put what they teach you into practice. Bring this new thing into your life. You see, as people of faith, we should always be sharing and we should always be searching. We should always be sharing what we have. And we, would all, we should always be searching for and, and learning from others. And so I, I challenge you, find someone to share with and find someone to learn from. It could even be the same person. As people of faith, we should always be sharing and we should always be searching, bringing out what is old and what is new and sharing that all with each other and with the world around us. Try that this week. And then we can be scribes trained for the kingdom, artists for the kingdom of God. May it be so. Amen.